0: Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. Good to see you guys, too. The junior hires are taking off. Bye, you guys. You guys can say goodbye to them, too. Bye. (laughs) What a great group, man. This morning we're in Exodus, and we're going to hopefully cover a lot of territory in Exodus. Have you been enjoying this time in the book of Exodus? Did you know we were in the book of Exodus? Okay, yeah. So, so we're, we're in a series uh, called The Way Forward, and we've just been going through this book of Exodus kind of chapter by chapter, and we're about to jump a bunch of chapters or, or cover a lot of chapters together because we're going to talk about the plagues, the ten plagues that fell upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Are you familiar with the story? And, and as we look at it, my prayer is that we could see it in the big picture of the message of the book of Exodus that we could also apply it to our lives. I was telling Pastor Andy earlier, I read a lot, and you know, you read a lot of information, and you get all this information in your head, like obscure things and what connects with what, and you take a step back and you just go, so what, right? So what? Like my intent for you this morning is not to come at you with a lot of information, but hopefully as we talk about the Word of God, as we talk about Exodus, that there's gonna be some points where it lands in our hearts, where there's some application and some things to consider, And one of the huge benefits of studying the Old Testament, um, the Old Testament can be a, a, a scary place sometimes if you, you know, sometimes we avoid books like Leviticus or different things like that. But it's really not a scary place at all. It's the word of God. And one of the huge benefits of studying the Old Testament is you learn a lot about God. How many of you want to know more about God? And so you learn his character and you learn his nature. And through the things that he does, you learn about how God acts towards his people. And the beautiful thing about, I just saw Bill Jackson. Bill, it's good to see you. We've been praying for you. You look great, by the way. Yeah. And since I'm saying it, I saw my friend Eddie over here from San Diego. Good to see you, buddy. All right. So, and, and shouts out to you and you, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Anyways. Um, I forgot what I was saying about the Bible, but it was really good stuff. <laughs> in, the, in the book of Exodus, you, you not only learn about God and you know more about him. And you should, I, I think it's, it's a fair thing to, to read scripture and not just read the words, but to take a step back and say, what did I just learn about God, right? But the reason you're learning about him is because you, you don't just know about him, you get to know him. Does that make sense? It's not just knowing about him, it's literally knowing him. And how many of you can agree that we're living in a time where um, we often worship the God of our own understanding, the God of our own creation, right, that we take aspects of a character of God, and we don't really like that, so we don't like to talk about that part, but we add to it maybe this aspect, and even in the church, and even amongst believers, it's often the case where we can create a God that we like a little bit better, that more fits our lifestyle and what we want to do. Is that a fair statement? And so that's why it's so important to stay grounded in the word of God, to stay grounded in scripture and try to understand even the things that are sometimes a little difficult to understand. And certainly that fits in the category of the 10 plagues. And, um, but there's some amazing things that happen. If you are picking up from where we left off last week, um, we talked about the fact that sometimes things get worse before they get better. In fact, we said most oftentimes things get worse before they get better. And so for the children of Israel, they were super excited when they heard the news and saw the demonstration of God's power and glory um, that, that God came with a promise. He came with Moses and Aaron, his spokespeople. And they came and they said, God's going to do some awesome stuff. And they demonstrated his power. They threw the, the staff down, turned into a snake, grabbed the tail, came back into his staff. That would be enough for me. I'd be like, all right, he's coming. It's good. One of the repeated themes throughout um, Exodus is that God heard the anguish of his people, and he was going to do something about it. And so this, this, the elders of Israel heard this message from their guys, Moses and Aaron. And it says in there that when they saw the demonstration of the power, they believed, right? They were pumped. It's like, okay, our God's awesome, right? They were singing songs about it. They were just super stoked. And so now they, they go and they give Pharaoh the same message. And Pharaoh is not nearly as excited as the Hebrew elders, Pharaoh takes it and just is like, no, not going to happen. In fact, these are this is just a bunch of excuses so that the people don't work anymore. And so he, he extends their labor to be almost impossible. He takes away one of the key elements of their brick making, which was straw, and says, go find your own straw and make bricks. It's basically like, do the impossible. And what we said about that last week is that when we get to those points of the impossible, we often quit. We often say, OK, it's impossible. I'm out. But the impossible is the beginning place for God. When you're in an impossible circumstance or situation, you are a fantastic um, candidate for a miracle to do and see what only God can do. Are you tracking with me? That was all last week. And so now we come into this week and we look at at Exodus chapter 6. And God again reaffirms his promise to his people. It's like even though it doesn't look like it's, it's going as it should... I am a covenant-keeping God. I'm keeping my promise. I will deliver you. In fact, this theme of freedom and deliverance is in the book of Exodus all the way through. And it carries through the entire Bible that God is a God who longs for freedom for his people. And he fights for that freedom. He sends his son for that freedom. It's freedom over the cruel master of sin. And some of you in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can think of times in your life, or maybe some of you are in a moment right now where you are subject to the cruel master of sin. And what that cruel master does is it keeps you in slavery and bondage, doing the very things that you don't want to do and keeping you far from loving relationship with God. And it's a, it's a point where if you've ever been there or if you are there, you long for that freedom. You long to find your way out. It's almost like a hopeless scenario as you're in it. But the hope is that when we read Exodus and we understand the character of God, that God is fighting for your freedom. That God has promised to give you freedom. And that that God, um, as we'll see a little bit later, is jealous for you. And that jealousy that he has for you, again, is not like an insecure person. Uh, I'm kind of giving away my last point, but in the Hebrew translation of the word jealousy, it, it, it's two things. It's zeal and envy, right? Zeal is uh, like a passion to accomplish something, right? I'm zealous for it. When we think of the Isaiah passage that's foretelling about Jesus. It says that the zeal of God will accomplish this. You're, you remember this. It's God's going to do what he's going to do through his passion, And so the other side of that same word is envy. Envy is selfishly wanting what's not yours, but that somebody else has, which is sinful, right? And so we know of the character of God that he's not sinful in any way. So we can say that in in the same way that we say God is jealous for you, he's also zealous for you. He longs to accomplish his will in your life, and his will in your life is for freedom. Everybody say freedom. Freedom. That, that's what he longs to bring into your life. And and once you've experienced the freedom of God, you can't, you can't be around somebody who's in bondage to their own sin without saying, hey, there's a better way, right? That's where we as the church become bearers of the gospel message that we long, once you've been freed, you long to bring somebody else into that freedom. That's why Christians can be annoying to people sometimes. It's like, all you ever want to talk about is Jesus, you know? It's this deep desire for, for the person that you love to be freed from their captivity from sin by a cruel master. And God has the answer. And so that's where we find ourselves now. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 6 starting in verse 1. God's reaffirming his desire to free his people. And I love this terminology. Again, keep in mind that everything we read today is telling us about the character and nature of God. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1 says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Now look at this. This is in the ESV. With a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of the land. And then he goes on to say, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Do you remember going back a few weeks in the burning bush part of the story that God reveals himself by name? This is my name. You know, I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so it's this next level of, of, of relationship and closeness with God. And he says, I will also establish my covenant with them and give them the land of Canaan, the land which they lived as sojourners. And he goes on to to affirm that he's going to do it and that he's heard about their groanings. And verse 9 is where I want to look for a moment. Verse 9, if you jump down a few verses. It says, Moses spoke this to the people of Israel. He, He told them everything that God said. God's going to do it. God's going to set you free. He's going to deliver you. But how many of you know sometimes you're not ready for that message, especially when you've been given an impossible task of harder work, and when you don't complete your quota, you're getting beat. And now you're hearing again the same thing you heard before. And you're, you're not going to get excited about it this time. At least they weren't. Moses spoke these things about the covenant keeping God and he was going to do what he said he was going to do. But they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And I want to just take a moment and focus in on those two, um, two descriptors, right? A broken spirit. And harsh slavery. Any slavery is harsh. I mean, come on. But their circumstances were so, um, so unjust that it caused in them a broken spirit. And, and, and again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm asking you to search your heart. The times where you could say of yourself that you just this, this brokenness of spirit. That there's been times where things feel so low and things feel so um, down. That it's not just you're having a bad day, but you can sense this soul sickness. That there's something inside your heart that just feels broken. Proverbs puts terminology to it. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 14. It says a man's spirit will endure sickness, right? When you're physically ill, it's a bummer. Like, you know, and and we're living in a time where people are getting more physically ill with things like COVID or whatever else. And so you're going through and you know there's like this timeline. Okay, if I can get 10 days into it, I'm getting towards the end. It's terrible, but you can endure it. There are many other kinds of sickness. There's nothing joyful about them. But it says this, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit... Who can bear it? It's making this comparison between this physical sickness and this internal, like, spiritual sickness. And so where we find the children of Israel is in a place of, of crushed and broken spirit. It's like they are, they are spiritually sick. And that spiritual sickness feels somewhat impossible. And I, and I want to say that maybe there are some in the room now, or, or, or maybe some that you know and that you love so much, that are experiencing that broken spirit. That, that when you try to talk to them and you, when you try to share good news or try to share with them about Jesus, it's like they can't believe it, they can't hear it, they can't receive it because it's just bouncing off the wall of their heart because they're so broken inside. And again, I, 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 I've talked to so many people and I've experienced things, even sitting in a room and, and hearing the truths of God's word, but it's just like it's not penetrating because of this brokenness of spirit. If we were left with that, we'd be left with a really sad story, but we're not at all. In fact, as we jump forward into this whole theme and we look in Romans chapter 5, this is one of just such a favorite passage for me. It says that while we were still weak, at the right time,
1: I love that
0: word, at the right time, you know, if you're a slave in Egypt or you're one with a broken spirit, it's, you, you can't even have a concept of time. It's just so hopeless. Hopelessness and despair, it, just is a, it, it brings this heart sickness. But God's on the move. God's doing something. God is always at work behind the scenes. How many of you have gone through like a terrible thing, and then you take a step back after you've been through that terrible thing, and you realize that God was doing something through it? Come on, is it true or am I making stuff up? So, so now we look at, at God who at the right time. Everybody say at the right time. At the right time. Is your at the right time the same as God's at the right time? I will say it never is. It never is. Because his ways are not our ways. And so at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners in our heart sickness, in our broken spirit, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's good because we can't be. He's good when we're not. He's faithful, but sometimes it's fair to say he's difficult to understand. God had a purpose, and and, um, I love this passage that I came across because it reveals why God didn't just show up and just Shut Pharaoh up, get him out of the way, take his people and move forward. Uh, we don't know how long these plagues lasted. There's different views, somewhere between six months. Um, the, the Jewish commentators say it was one year. Uh, we're not certain, and we meaning all the smart Bible people in the world. No, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, it's just not clear. But regardless, we know that there was a time period where God could have just come in. We, we, he could have come in and just fixed it in a day. But he had other things in mind. In Exodus 9, verse 15. For by now, this is the Lord speaking, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. Why? To show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God had a purpose to do what he was about to do um, and show his mighty power through plagues. There were 10 plagues, right? And the number 10 is significant in the Hebrew world. Um, similar to the number 7, it, it's like a completeness. You have, uh, you ha- I, I saw one quote that said, based on that, Egypt was completely plagued. It was completely plagued. And now, now if you look in contrast later in Exodus, you're going to see Moses has an encounter with God and he receives the what? How many commandments? Ten commandments, right? So you have this idea of a complete law, a complete moral law, and you have this idea of a complete plague. And so um, we get into these plagues and the very first one is dealing with the Nile. Now the Nile was everything to Egypt. Egypt without the Nile is just a desert. Egypt with the Nile is a very fertile area. And so there's the ability to provide for people, to irrigate crops, and so forth. And so when we jump into Exodus chapter 7 and verse 14, um, we see the first plague of the water uh, turned to blood. Is everybody still with me? All right. So it says this. When the Lord said to Moses, "Pharaoh's (laughs) Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. In verse 15 it says, go to Pharaoh in the morning... And he is is out going to the water. I just picture Pharaoh in his Pharaoh robe. I don't know, like he's just getting up. He's got some Pharaoh tea or coffee and he's, I don't know if he's going to take a bath or get some water. I just, I don't know. He's just morning Pharaoh. Like, I don't know if Pharaoh's a morning guy or not, but it was just like first thing in the morning as he's going out to the water and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Hey Pharaoh, how are you doing this morning? And take in your hand the staff that I turned into a serpent and you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sorry, I lost my place. The God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile and it shall turn to blood. And the fish in the Nile shall die, and the, and the Nile will stink. Then the, um, the King James says the Nile stank, which I think is even better than stink, stank, stink, stank. Okay, Anyways, And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. That is a lot of blood. I, I, I remembered, you know, the, the Nile turning to blood, but in reading this again, I didn't realize how complete this plague was. It wasn't just the river. It was anywhere there's water, your sparklets thing, everything. Everywhere, right? Their vessels were even blood. You couldn't get away from it. You couldn't get fresh water. It's how complete this plague was. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants and, and lifted the staff and they struck the water in the Nile and the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile, here it is, and the Nile stank. And so, so the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret arts. I had to take a step back and think about that. I mean, Pharaoh is so prideful, right? That this is clearly more than it appears to be. This is not just um, God striking plagues upon Egypt. This is a showdown between the gods of Egypt and the God of heaven. And so Pharaoh, in his pride, um, as long as his magicians can duplicate it, it's like, well, who are you? But I was just thinking to myself, who would want to duplicate a plague? Like, pride gets you to do dumb stuff. Are you following me? Obviously, the thing had to get, like, clear again for them to, to duplicate it. So you just get more blood in the Nile? Like, pride gets you to do dumb stuff. Anyways, don't be prideful and do dumb stuff. That's the message. So, um, so Pharaoh's heart hardened, and he remained, uh, he remained that way, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not even take it to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile. That's, that's what Bear Grylls would have done. He would have dug along the Nile, right? And then let the, let the bloody water get filtered out. And then he would have some clear water. You guys don't watch Bear Grylls. You're missing it. And the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. For they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, um, these plagues go on. There's obviously, as I said, 10 of them, but I'm not going to go through every single one of them, but I am going to share about a few of them because I think it's significant. Um, These first three plagues impact everybody. So if if you are a child of God, you're a Hebrew, and you want water, your water is also turned to blood. The next next plague that we read about uh, is the plague of the frogs, right? So you first have um, the plague of blood. There, the, there was a Nile god named Hapi or Happy that was associated with, with the Nile. It was the, the deity that they worshipped and gave homage to for, for the Nile. And so clearly you begin to see this repeated theme. As God brings a plague, it seems to match a deity that Egypt worships. And that's why the second one, the frog, is they have a, a goddess of fertility um, that's called Hecate. And most of these uh, deities that the Egyptians worship were like these hybrid people-animals, right? So it's kind of like Narnia-looking figures where you have a human with like a frog head. And that frog head represented the frogs, and the frogs represented fertility and multiplication and stuff like that. And so the next one is is frogs. And it's not just like a few frogs. That would be cute, wouldn't it? I mean, who doesn't love a good frog, right? Like frogs are cute. but But, but this is like frogs everywhere, and the way that the Bible describes it, you, you open your cupboard, there's frogs. You go to get cereal, there's frogs. There's frogs everywhere. You, everywhere you step, you're stepping on frogs. Like, it's nasty. And, and I'm, I'm painting this picture to say you have, like, have you ever been to Salton Sea, like, recently? Dead fish everywhere, and that smell of dead fish. You have the smell of dead fish. You have the smell of dead frogs. It's nothing, like, cute about it, And this is impacting not only the Egyptians, but it's impacting the children of Israel as well. The third thing that they, and and by the way, again, pridefully, Pharaoh says, hey, my Egyptians can make a bunch of frogs too. It's like, why do you want more frogs on top of your frogs? But okay, so now he has a sense of like, all right, this isn't God. My guys are as good as your guys. Now, the third one is gnats or lice, right? So there's a God in Egypt that they worship called Geb, G-E-B who's the God of the the, the the dust of the ground, right? He's the God of the, the earth. And so, so God sends like these small gnats, you know, or lice that are literally everywhere, that, that are like the, the amount of dust that you see on the ground is the amount of gnats or lice that you see covering this place. That's gross. And so again, Pharaoh's like, all right, well... Okay, and I don't know if he had like a screened in porch or whatever, but it seems to be that he's impacted as much as everybody else, including the children of Israel. But yet this time his magicians go to try to duplicate it and they come back and they go, this was their quote, this was the finger of God. We can't do it. And from that point on, his magicians are out and and God escalates plague by plague. Now, why is this is also like a kind of a cool turning point is after these first three, the plagues only affect the Egyptian people. And I feel like there might be a point for us, okay, and we, as we take a step back, that when God is at work, when God is bringing his wrath, when God is bringing correction or whatever else, there are times where we as the people of God will experience in part that wrath. Not that wrath, excuse me, but that punishment or that, that anger. I don't have the right word for it. But, but we're not gonna experience the full brunt of it because now there are seven more things that happen that the children of Israel are free from and there's mercy in that. And I feel like that's a balanced view. Sometimes we think that we're gonna skate through this world and nothing bad is gonna happen to us. But a balanced view is that anything that does happen to us passes through the hands of God. But no matter what we, we experience, the Bible tells us that we are not reserved for his wrath. We don't get the full brunt of it. But we are going to experience some of it. And that's just truth. And and I think that should bring a little bit of a settling to us, quite honestly. Because if you're looking for a pain-free life, if you're looking for a comfort life, you aren't promised that in Scripture. I'm sorry. If you're looking for a life free of any kind of trial, test, or persecution, you don't see that in Scripture. But what you do see is the mercy and grace of God. I had a wonderful conversation with a guy yesterday who, uh, super smart guy, engineer, and he, he was interested in all the obscure passages in the Bible. What about this one? Was Melchizedek Jesus, you know, and just going through all these different ones. And, um, and one of the things that we talked about was the fact that uh, we talked about people like Polycarp and different ones who were persecuted. And we said that there are parts of these things that we will experience, but the story of history and the testimony is that those who experience these things were we're singing praises to God. Their eyes were open to the grace and the goodness of God, not the experience of his deep discipline. Does that make sense? Now, we used to talk about this stuff like this could happen, but we are talking about this right now in real time. We need to hear this stuff, and we need to internalize this. If we're going to make our way forward... Our way forward is understanding the character and nature of our God, not the God that we want or the God that we create that says, I get to live in a bubble of pain-free life. That is our own doing. The God of the Bible says, no, you're going to experience this in this world. Jesus says it like this, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he says, but be of good cheer. Because I've overcome the world. Stephen, the first martyr, is like looking up to heaven going, is that all you got? Okay, I forgive you. I'm just like, he is so in tune with what lies ahead that this earth is so temporal. And so there's good news even in the bad news. Amen. Amen. So now the fourth plague comes. And now at the fourth plague, God has Pharaoh's attention. And this is where you start to see Pharaoh's personality play out even more. The prideful, arrogant one who, by the way, has been told his whole life that he is God. Okay? He's been told he is basically the embodiment of Ra or one of their, their key gods. And, and, and so he thinks pretty highly of himself. And you get that. But now he's humbled. Now God has his attention. Now he's realizing, okay, my guys can't duplicate what this God can do. In fact, they've, those magicians have pointed out this is the finger of God. And so he comes on to this next one, and this one seems to really get him. It's the flies. <laughs> I, I read a statistic that there are 17 million flies to every one human being. That's gross. Flies are nasty. Don't you sometimes wonder, like, God, we know that everything you made is good and you have a purpose for it, but what's up with the fly? Like, what's up with this... There's a lot of them. And so we can conceptualize if you've been camping or you've been to places like Alaska or different places, you see like buzzing creatures that are all around you that swarm you. You can realize like how annoying this would be. Now we don't know for sure if this was like our common fly that we have buzzing around or a horse fly or like a meat eating fly or even a beetle. There was a scarab beetle or these are known in that area. And there was another deity that the Egyptians worshiped called Kefri. Kephri was another one of these combo humans with a, a bug or a, a, an animal face. And the animal face on Kephri was like a, a beetle, you know. And so um, and so, God is showing his, again, his superiority over all these ones who claim to have some sort of power. And as we read um, in, in Exodus chapter 8, starting in verse 24, it says, And God did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of pharaoh and into his servants house and through all the land of egypt and excuse me throughout all the land of egypt the land was ruined by swarms of flies get in your mind that this has an accumulative effect smelly dead fish smelly dead frogs gnats and you're still healing from all the lice bumps that you have and you know you've bought all the lice shampoo off the shelf at CVS and everything like you're still you're still reeling from that and now you got now you got uh these flying creatures whether they're bugs or beetles or flies or beetles we don't quite know and so Pharaoh called to Moses and Aaron and he says fine go sacrifice to your God within the land you see what he does he doesn't say your people are free I, I know the power of God. He's like, okay, I can't give myself fully to this, but what I can say is whatever it's going to take to stop it, you guys can do your thing, but you got to do it here. Pharaoh the negotiator, and then he'll continue to negotiate, make promises, and then he will always back out. Pharaoh is a type for somebody else. Have any idea who that somebody else might be? the enemy of your soul who will constantly negotiate with you, who will constantly say, hey, this isn't going to be that bad this time, or just do this and this will be okay, and who will always lie to you because the enemy of our soul is a liar and his native tongue is lies, just like Pharaoh who was a liar. In fact, he was described in Exodus as a cheat. So it goes on, and he says, um, he says, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are abominable, abominable, an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? Moses is a wise, has a wise moment. He's like, I'm not going to make a deal with Pharaoh. And let me tell you this, do not make a deal with Pharaoh. It will always go bad. It will always go bad. And so he has a clear objective. He has a clear step of obedience to God. You know, I I took a lot of time, as I said, to look into these different creatures, and I realized, so what, afterwards, that I could give you a, a lecture that would be more like the Discovery Channel than it would be a sermon. But I do have to say, when I was looking up the scarab beetle and the fly, it was fascinating to me. These beetles and the... Whether they were worshipping a deity that had a fly face or a beetle face, they were both there in Egypt and they were both esteemed creatures by the Egyptian people for good reason. That if you were to sit there with a really good camera and watch these creatures, they are amazing. The scarab beetle, for example, can can just devour stuff and it has such organization to the way that it devours and then it and then it stores food and and it I mean, it can just, like there was this picture, it's kind of gross, but I'll say it. They, they, they eat doo-doo, okay? And so one of the things, when you have a land full of livestock, like how wonderful the design of God to create a, a, a creature that deals with the waste. If you didn't have this beetle and you had cows that go to the bathroom all over the pasture, it doesn't, it takes a while for that stuff to go away. But God creates these beetles that swarm on it and just they, it's gone. It's amazing. I know it's gross to talk about poop on a Sunday, but but that, but 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 the thing is, when you sit and you realize the the intricate design of a creator, and you see like the organization and they have different roles and and I was telling the guys earlier, there's this one moment in a time lapse video where the beetle has rolled up they roll they roll their stuff that they eat, they roll it up and they push it for storage, and another beetle came at it and was like, "No, I want that. that's a really good." thing and so so it comes at it and and it's like king of the mountain right the beetle stands up there and then they start duking it out and the, and the beetle this is so cool it reaches under and it goes like this and it flips the other beetle and it just goes head over hill just completely and gets it out of the way and then it rolls this. okay so I'm, <clears throat> I'm i'm saying all this to say there's a clear passage in scripture Where we come to the understanding that you could get all geeked out and fascinated on how cool the animal kingdom is, and it is, and you could get fascinated so much so by a fly, they loved the flies because they didn't ever meet Louis Pasteur, they didn't know that they 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 thought the, the the flies were you know creating something out of nothing. They didn't understand the concept of larva, so they fell into that same trap. So they also loved the flies for that reason. But but all that to say. You could get fascinated by that and begin to, like, get a beetle tattoo on your shoulder and be like, I love me my beetles, or whatever else, or a fly. Or you could look to the God who created it and just step back and go, what a masterful design of an intelligent creator. In Romans, I have to read this Romans passage to you because it, it spells it out so clearly for us. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, A passage is saying, God in his eternal power makes this stuff. What we ought to do as, as people is go, wow, God. Not, wow, what a cool beetle, but wow, what an amazing God who creates such a thing. His, his character is a designer. But there's more. It says, for although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. This sounds a lot like the Egyptians. But they came futile in their thinking And foolish in their hearts, and they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. What a commentary on society in this moment. Verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And as a result... God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God was up to something when he was doing these plagues. He was showing his glory. He was showing his all, his might and his power. And and it was remarkable what he was doing. But it was also a punishment. There was wrath that was involved with it. And as I had to take a step back, and I had to ask myself the question, and maybe I'll ask you the same one, is at what point does God have your attention? At what point does God have my attention? Um, What is the rock bottom realizing um, that, that when we think we're the master over sin, we've actually been mastered by sin? That's how deceptive sin is. At what point does God have our attention? And this isn't a hellfire and damnation sermon for you. This is the this is reality of we serve a holy God who is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we take a look at our lives and our loved ones, we realize we don't want to be like that analogy of the frog in the boiling pot, right? That he's not going to jump into hot water, but he's going to stay there as it warms up to the point where it's, he's boiling. And so I think it's wise that any time we gather, I think it's wise that we take stock and we look at our lives and we ask God, "What are you trying to get my attention on any one thing? Because he was certainly getting, beginning to get Pharaoh's attention. Um, I have a slide that I'll just kind of break out the, the rest of the plagues so that if you wanted to, to look more into it, you could um, see and, and study these things on your own. But all of these plagues have a God associated with them. The flies, the the next one that, that happens is livestock. You know, all the, all the cattle and livestock are killed of the Egyptians. And yet, the people of, of God, the Hebrews, their cattle were just fine. You begin to get a picture that maybe he is as powerful as he says he is. And there's the God that they worship that, regard, that was connected to livestock the boils, the boils were horrible. The, when, when Pharaoh said to his magicians, can you duplicate these boils? They're like, we got so many boils on us, we're not duplicating nothing. Like at that point, they were smarter than their God. Then there was hailstones. And at this point, even Pharaoh was like repentive, Like, whoa. The hailstones came and it was just like thunder from heaven. And it was, it, it, God gave, in his mercy gave a warning and said, hey, I'm about to send hail to you, and it's going to kill anything that's in its way. So if you want to live, make sure you're indoors. Um, The locusts, and you've ever seen, uh, you can look at some cool YouTube videos of locusts and what they're capable of doing in literally devouring land. And then darkness. It says that it was pitch dark, right? Have you ever been in such darkness where you can't even see your hand in front of your face? And you've got no light? And it stinks everywhere, and your land is a mess. And then it goes into the the final and the last of the plagues, which is a culmination. And each one of these things are escalating. God is saying, hey, I'm powerful. And it's Pastor Andy will teach us about that next week. But it's the Passover where Pharaoh himself is now confronted as the one who thinks he's the giver of life. He's the ultimate creator. He's the ultimate deity. And God says, no, not you. And at that point, the children of Israel are released only to be chased and followed. You can take the slide down, but there's something just so that we cover each one of those things. As I just really want to come in for a landing, I know that there's a lot of content to this. And I, and I hope and pray that um, some of these things will stir some thinking about the character of God about who God is and what he's capable of. And, and this, to me, is the understanding that God is all powerful and that he's doing things that sometimes we scratch our head and go, why would you do that and not this? God has a plan and God has a purpose and he will always show his glory. And, and that's where we get into this last and final um, part of his character and nature. And that's that God has a, a loyal love for you and a loyal love for me. That this loyal love that he has is, is where we get this idea of covenant. And um, that regardless of how we respond to him, like his love for us is just outpouring. And and that's where we kind of come into this idea of, of his jealousy, right? Um, he says it of himself multiple times in the book of Exodus that that I'm a jealous God. And it's difficult for us to understand that he's a jealous God when we, again, think through our concepts of jealousy. But maybe a, a healthy way to look at it would be, you know, a father towards their child or a husband towards their wife. Like if you saw somebody pulling your wife away or you saw somebody deceiving your child, there's a righteous moment where you're not going to go, well, you know, they got free will, whatever they want to do, right? Where, where you're, you're going to knock somebody out if they're taking your wife In the wrong direction. I don't know if you can still say that and not get arrested, but you're you're, going to take strong action, right? Uh, Does that make sense? It's what I said earlier: the the zeal that God has. It's it's right and it's good. The, the concept of envy and, and manipulation and pettiness, that's not wrapped into the character of God. But there's got to be something special to, to resound with your heart that your God loves you so much that he cares. He cares when you're going in the wrong direction. He cares when somebody's deceiving you. He absolutely cares when, when sin's hold begins to take a, a, a grip upon your life because of the injustice of ones that don't know and serve him. And so as we kind of get to the so what portion, um, his loyal love for us, even when it seems too late, God is on time doing things behind the scenes that impact not only your life, but others' lives. Secondly, that God is righteously jealous and, and he will not compete with any other idols in our lives. I have this quote that I thought was a really fitting quote for this portion. It's a theologian and uh, pastor, He actually <laughs> teaches at, at Talbot here in La Mirada, Biola's Theological School. And he says, uh, right at the heart of the laws of the covenant, God wants his people to know that his covenant relationship is permanent and exclusive. He wants them to realize that he is a personal God, establishing a personal relationship with his people. And that his people should relate to him as he is not as a more user-friendly God of their own making. I'll leave that up for a minute if you kind of want to ponder it. <clears throat> the last and the, the final takeaway of, of all of this is that God is a God of freedom. And um, I'll bring us back to that Romans 5 passage where it says that at the right time, God steps in. Uh, I feel like, um, in fact, I want to invite the worship team to come back up if if you could play that song that he came to my rescue, that was a beautiful song that really fits the moment but um yeah that that as I read this and as I thought about this, I thought about the the most important thing you know the most important thing about all this isn't that. There are some really cool facts about the Egyptian gods that God overpowers, but he does, and he's awesome in that. It's not focusing on Pharaoh or any of the history of Egypt. None of that is as important as the very simple and basic truth that God longs for your life to be filled with freedom. And that, that he's jealous for that. And, and, and that, 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 that jealousy is a zealous desire to do whatever he can to passionately pursue you with loyal love so that you're not trapped. And I, and I thought about this message and I thought about this moment and I thought, you know, sometimes pastors feel like they preach to the choir, right? You know what preaching to the choir is? It, it's kind of a way of saying, I'm telling you stuff you already know. You know, there's probably your good friend that needs to hear this you know, or your sinful neighbor that plays his music too loud and smokes pot. I don't know. <laughs> what, whatever it is, right? Like, maybe, maybe that's what we think. But I felt like this quickening in my spirit where God said, no, you're not preaching to the choir. You're preaching to my people. And there are many of my people who are trapped. Trapped. And that trap can be so shameful, you know? Again, I'm not talking about, hey, I want to know what your hidden secret sin is. I'm saying that there is a Test, desperately terrible, terrible plan of the enemy to break your spirit. You know, you can deal with a cold. You can even deal with a long-term illness, but a broken spirit, who can deal with that? But Thanks be to God that by His grace, He makes a way for those of us that have broken spirits, those of us who have been trapped in bondage of sin, those of us who have, who have received the impact of other sin in our lives that God wants you to know that he is a God of freedom and he wants you to walk in that freedom. But the beauty and the tragedy is that he can't make you do it. The beauty is that he's created you with a free will. If if God was envious, he'd just make you do what, what he wants you to do. But God is just and he's good and he's loving. And so the tragedy part of it, which is also the beauty part of it, is that we can choose to go, no, I got this. I know the Bible backwards and forwards. I could quote a verse against that. You know, those could be religious ways of not embracing the freedom and the deliverance of God and breaking down in humility and just saying, God, I need you, I need you. And so whether it's it's you or whether it's your neighbor or whether it's your friend or your family or loved one, as you hear this song of a God who has come to your rescue, remember the power of the gospel that God in his goodness while we were sinners died for us so that we could be given eternal life and life to the fullest. And if you're, if you're finding yourself in a place of broken spirit, if you're finding yourself in a place of being trapped, open your heart to Jesus this morning. The same gospel that you heard once before that set you free, the enemies try to distort that a little bit. It's the truth that God has given you freedom. If you've never opened your heart to Jesus before, maybe you've sat in these sermons and, and, and you've never quite said, yeah, I believe these things. I know that given my own pride, that given my own ways, that I will just walk sinfully and I'll result, my result will be I'll, I'll be in, in bondage. I'll be enslaved to that. And you've realized that something has got to break that chain and, and you haven't been able to do it. It's Jesus, it's Jesus in his goodness who died on the cross for our sins, who has broken every chain so that you can have freedom. The purpose of the church, the message of the church is the gospel and it is written all throughout the pages of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament alike. And so as they play this song again, thank you for being so patient, listening to me talk for so long, but don't miss this moment to remember the goodness of God, to remember the freedom that comes and to respond to the gospel. those who you long to see walking in freedom. God, and I speak freedom over your people. Freedom, God, from insecurities. Freedom from the the holds of sin. Freedom from addiction. Freedom from anxiety. Freedom from fear. Freedom from hopelessness and despair. Healing over broken spirits. God, what only you can do is you showed your mighty works. You put them on display for the known world in that moment, the the superpower of the world and the super powerful leader whose heart was hardened against you. And yet, God, you showed over and over again completely that you were the one and only power. And you, God, deserve all honor and glory. And we thank you that you never misuse your power but it's your zeal that comes after us with your loyal love that draws us to repentance, that draws us to the truth, that frees us of our pride, thinking that we are our own God or that we can make a God that we like. Lord, we bow our knee to you, the one and only, the one who was and who is and who is to come. And again, God, we say all honor and glory be to your name. Set us free, God, that we might worship you. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen, Amen. God bless you.